Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 30. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to death. And they were glad and agreed to give him Judas money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined a table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which one of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute rose, also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of God. Today we land on a passage that, honestly, it feels really practical for our church, because every single week we have a moment in our service that reminds us of this passage when we take the Lord's Supper right here to our to my left, your right. For many of you, Seoul is the first church, one, that maybe you've ever been to, or at least you've been committed to regularly. For some of you here, that's true. And for still others, Seoul is the first church you've ever been to that maybe partakes of the Lord's Supper regularly. Um, Maybe you've been to churches that practice it on a, on a least on a, on a less frequent basis. 
But we practice it every single week. And the reason why is because in our understanding of what happens here at the table is something beyond remembrance. And very much includes that. But what is happening at the table on a weekly basis has spiritual benefit, tangible benefits to our lives, specifically as we walk in the Christian life. You know, probably for most of you here, the Lord's Supper has just been this powerless, regular, mundane practice. But it's not really been functional in any real way. Meaning it's not brought any type of spirituality to your life. It's not brought any type of spiritual vibrancy to your life. And honestly, it, it has no real place in your life. And for others, you're on the opposite side of the spectrum where the Lord's Supper has been overly mystical and honestly a little weird. And it's okay if that's, if that's maybe your, your background. My prayer today is that this passage, which I think it does, would remove any unnecessary mysticism that may exist around what the Lord's table is and primarily restore in all of us a grandeur, a, a grandiosity that we should feel every time we come to the Lord's table. I pray that today in this passage we would understand what's really happening when we partake of this. What it signifies. What it what encouragement there is at the table for all of us. And who actually, this is probably the most important point, who is there with us as we come to the table? You know, when you read this passage here, specifically, like I said, you know, we read this, this chunk here, but we're focusing specifically on verses 7 through 23. And some of the verses maybe in uh, 1 through 6 has some clues for us that are helpful. But the majority of our passage that we're going to look at is 7 through 23. What Luke is doing in this passage is this. Jesus is rewriting the Passover meal to be about him. He's taking a, a historical practice in the Jewish faith. And he's re, re, rewriting it to be about him, ultimately. He has the authority, and this is what Luke wants you to, to see here, is that he is the one who has the authority as God. To change the Passover meal to be a meal that demonstrates what he would do in the world through his death and resurrection. It's important to understand what Luke is, is doing here in this chapter. Remember the verses, the first verses of his book, you know, 18 months ago, you guys may well remember. The first verses in his book, he tells us that what he's wanting to do in writing this gospel, this book, is to compile an orderly account of the narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is significant because what it tells us about Luke is that he's not just reporting events. It's not just him saying, hey, this is what happened in the world. Take it as you will. Whatever you get from it, you get from it. No, Luke has particular purposes in mind. He has a, he's writing it in a way, he's telling a story in such a way that brings out theological implication for our lives. He's writing it in a way that makes you believe certain things about God. That's what's important to see. And he not only wants us to know these things, but in a lot of cases, he wants us to draw certain conclusions that we're, that we're reading and ultimately understanding. And the major emphasis of the book of Luke is this. This is the major overarching story of what he's doing here all throughout his gospel. In the life of Jesus is the retelling of the history of God's people. 
Everything about the history of God's people finds its culmination in the person of Christ. And even further than that, Luke is saying you actually should retell it through the lens of Christ. It's a retelling of the history of God's people, the nation of Israel, from right, Genesis to Malachi. And Jesus is not just this one man in a line of all these other men that continues this narrative of God's work in the world. It might have began with the life of Adam or Abraham or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or David. In Jesus, what he's doing is he's showing us that we finally understand everything that God has done. Finally. And we understand everything that God is doing. And we ultimately understand everything that is to come for the believer, the one who believes in God's promises that are revealed in Christ. So Luke doesn't just present Jesus as a fulfillment of this random prophecy of the Old Testament. He doesn't present him that way. Luke presents Jesus as what the entirety of the Old Testament is about. Everything, every word pointing to Christ. What every event in the Old Testament is ultimately working towards is Christ, according to Luke. And what every moment in the history of redemption was ultimately revealing was Christ and what he would do in the world. Luke describes Jesus as the central figure for everything we know about God. Everything we know about the history of God's people. Here's an example of what I mean. You, you can turn and read this maybe later today or now if you want. At the end of Luke 3, the very end of Luke 3 and throughout the beginning of Luke 4, here's this seemingly insignificant moment where Luke gives us a genealogy inserted into the narrative randomly. This genealogy about Jesus. And the genealogy ends very significantly. It ends with Adam. Which demonstrates what Luke is ultimately trying to do. In Luke 3, he's trying to show us how Jesus is the son of Adam. And right after the last verse of Luke 3, where we see Jesus as the son of Adam, we see Jesus enter into the wilderness where he would face temptation from the serpent, Satan himself. But unlike Adam, unlike Adam, Jesus would stand strong in the face of temptation towards sin. He wouldn't waver against it. Jesus would prove to, prove to be here a true and better Adam. One that we most desperately needed. One that would not waver in the face of temptation. And one who, as we know, would ultimately bear the punishment of sin and remove our guilt that we inherited from our father, Adam. And unlike the first Adam where we all die, Romans 6 shows us, and what Luke is wanting us to see, that through the second Adam, everyone who trusts in him will be made alive. This is what Luke is doing. What Luke, what Luke is doing and saying here is what you read in the Old Testament is only a shadow. It's only a shadow. But the substance, the, the, the true nature of it is really Christ. It's about Christ. And time and again, Luke demonstrates how the entire history of God's people is fulfilled and can only be understood through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the only way we can understand anything that happens in the Old Testament according to Luke. And this is exactly what happens here in chapter 22, what we just read, about this institution of what we would call the Lord's Supper, but in the context it's called the Last Supper. Luke shows us here that the Last Supper that Jesus is, is partaking in here is really a signifier that Jesus is the true and the better Passover lamb. The Passover lamb from the Exodus story. This entire chapter, as you guys will see, it, it, it even begins here in verse 1. The very first verse there in Luke chapter 22 says, Now 
was the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover. This entire chapter is set around this meal in that, um, that has Old Testament implication called the Passover. Maybe some of you guys aren't super familiar with that because you're not, maybe you're, you, know, you don't have any history in the Jewish faith or you don't have any understanding of that. That's totally okay. The Passover was this celebration that the Jews would celebrate to commemorate the Exodus story. Commemorate it. Which, in the book of Exodus, what happens in the second book of the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus, we see Joseph, who is in the line of all of these men and women who were carrying on the promises of God that they were going to ultimately see fulfilled in the world. Joseph, in the line of those men and women, goes to Egypt. He moves to Egypt through a series of unfortunate events. And over time, the Egyptians forget what Joseph had done and who he was to the Egyptian people. He was a very central leader to those people. He helped them. He saw flourishing come to the land of Egypt. So the Israelites, over time, because of the changing of the guard in the Egyptian leadership, the Israelites become a slave to, to the Egyptians. They're enslaved by the Egyptians. This is basically retelling the early chapters of the book of Exodus. But God raised up an Israelite named Moses, who was, who was raised in Pharaoh's household, and who would ultimately, ultimately lead the people of God out of Egypt into God's promised land, where they would be with God forever. And not only would they be with God, but God would be their God. And the rule and the reign of God would be established in all of the world and all the nations would be blessed because of it. That's the promises of the Old Testament. So God comes to Moses and he calls him to be the leader that he would be. And he goes to Pharaoh and he tells Pharaoh to let the people go, but he doesn't do it, right? Many of us know the story or have seen the, uh, is it DreamWorks? Does the, the movie The Prince of Egypt? Honestly, incredible cartoon. Go watch it. The soundtrack's worth every penny. And Pharaoh's hardness of heart leads to this series of plagues that are struck against the Egyptians, brought against the Egyptians. Animals are killed, their animals are killed. Darkness covers the land. Gnats infest the whole land. A ton of other things. And finally, at the pinnacle of the story, where God's people are finally freed, and the promises that were given through Moses are finally felt, and they seem to be trending towards the promised land, Moses receives instruction from God to have all the Israelites slaughtered. Or sorry, all the Israelites slaughter a Passover lamb. That's the opposite of what I said. <laughs> all the Israelites slaughter a Passover lamb. Each in their home. They're instructed to eat this lamb, take the blood of this lamb, put it on the doorpost over their house. And at night, the angel of the Lord would go throughout all of the land of Egypt and they would see who has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And if it wasn't there, the firstborn of that household would be killed. And that night, what happens? That's what happens. This marks the moment for the people of God. As, as, as horrible as that is, this marks a moment for the people of God of their freedom. And what's interesting is they're not just free, but the scripture says that they actually plunder the Egyptians. Because of the blood of the Lamb that each Israelite family received and proclaimed over their lives by putting it on the doorpost. What happens is they are passed over. They're passed over. And they're freed from their bondage 
And they're freed from their slavery, which they had felt for hundreds of years. And they begin their journey, what would be called a journey of exile, into the wilderness where, until they would finally arrive into the promised land of God. And this Exodus story, this is, this is important. The Exodus story that I just told, there, there's more details, you know, in the story. So I would encourage you to go read it. Exodus is a book you can read probably in, in an hour. Go read it. It'd be, it would be very helpful. This Exodus story, story is literally everything to the Old Testament. It's everything to the Old Testament. From Exodus through the rest of the Old Testament, this Exodus story where the people of God are exodus through and from the land of Egypt. That's what that, that word means. It, this is the point of reference for everything that God says, for everything that happens in the scripture. Here's a good example. When God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, we all know the Ten Commandments. The very first thing he says before the Ten Commandments are given is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, look at the Exodus. See the Exodus. It's everything to the, New Test to the Old Testament. And the pinnacle point of the Exodus story, you could say, is the Passover land. Why they celebrate Passover. This is why the Jews would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate. You couldn't celebrate Passover unless you were in Jerusalem in this context of Jesus. It's central to understanding everything about the heritage of God's people, everything about the history of God's people, and their entire faith in God. But in a turn of events... Fast forward to Luke 22. Jesus does something that's either one of these two things. One, it's either blasphemous and he should be killed for it. Or he does something if he is God is extraordinary. He rewrites the entire ceremony of the Passover meal to be about him. He basically says around the table with his disciples, he says, what you celebrate when you celebrate the Passover lamb is actually the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. It's about me. I'm the Passover lamb, Jesus says. I'm the one whose blood you must proclaim over your life. I'm the one who frees you from your slavery. That's what he's doing here. And one point to note about this passage, which I think is really interesting. Look at verse 15. It says this. And he said to him, Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The, the original language here does something really interesting. It would, if you were to translate it literally, it would say, I have a desirous desire. I have a desire, desire. I'm just desirous of you. That's literally how it translates. That's just a way of saying that his heart could not be more focused upon this moment. His heart could not long anymore for what he was about to do with his disciples here. Jesus has so waited for this moment where he's going to take part of this meal. He's longed for it. He's wanted it to come so badly. Why was he so desirous in this way? Well, here's a few reasons. One, he understood how important this moment would be to open up the eyes of all those who were believing in him and trusting in him. He understood that in this moment, he was going to give them a paradigm for in which the rest of the church, the entire church, would follow him unto his death, into their death, and into life. But another reason why he was so desirous of this moment, it would be the last meal that he ate with his disciples. 
I mean, think about the heart of Jesus here. His last meal he gets to partake of with all of his disciples around, people who he walked with, lived with, slept with, right? Every night. Crawled on top of these mountains and prayed in the middle of the night while the disciples were falling asleep. These men who he had walked with for so long, this would be the last time he would get to eat with them before he died. John even highlights John 13, 1. It says he loved them to the end. He loved the disciples. He was so desirous to celebrate in this way. But two other things I would say of why he was desirous. He would establish here, at this moment in his life, he would establish something here that his church would practice for thousands of years to come. And through this practice, it would nourish and care for his church in ways that nothing else could. That's what he's establishing here. That's why he's desirous of this, because something's happening here. This is not just a moment in the history of Jesus' life. This is significant. And this meal marks the beginning of the passion events in a lot of ways. The reason Jesus came into the world where he would seek and to save the lost is because of what he would now begin to do on the backside of this meal. He desired for this day to come because ultimately it meant the fulfilling of the very things that he came into the world to do, to seek and to save the lost. So this is what I want to do for the remainder of our time. I want to give us three observations about this Last Supper that Jesus has here. And then I'm going to give us three observations about the Lord's Supper, which is the institution that follows on the backside of this meal. There's three things that the Last Supper shows us here, three observations here that are really significant, that help us understand what, what Jesus is doing and saying and how he's reframing what I would say the liturgy, which is just the practice of the Passover meal to be about him ultimately. Here's three observations. One is in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53, verse 12 shows us that there is going to be one who comes that is divided for many. This is what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So here in Luke 22, Jesus gives the disciples bread from one loaf and wine from one cup. Because as Isaiah 53 shows us right here, he would be the one who would save the many, as it says here. He would be the one who saved the many who received his blood, who received his body on their behalf. As the Passover lamb that would, lamb that would be slain in the story of the Exodus, for all who were in each Israelite's household, Jesus, the Passover lamb, would be slain and broken for all who would receive him. The many, as Isaiah 53 says. Everyone who would come and receive him. Jesus takes the bread and the cup here and he says this because it does not just commemorate a lamb, but the lamb of God. The lamb of God who was slain for those who would believe in him. God, in a turn of events, does not just sacrifice the lamb, but sacrifices himself. Takes on the, the weight of our sin onto his shoulders so that we can be free from our bondage. The true Passover. The scripture says in Romans chapter 3 that he might be the just and the justifier through the work of Christ so that he could pass over former sins. Isn't that amazing? The... 
the Exodus story gives us a paradigm for us to understand Christ in a way that nothing else in the Bible does. It gives us a narrative to say, this is amazing what God has done. Do you see it? He doesn't just commemorate a lamb, but he points to the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just as Isaiah 53 says, there would be one who would come, Jesus, and Jesus is saying, it's me, guys. It's me. It's me. Look at me. Behold me. There would be one that would come, according to Isaiah 53, that would be divided for the many. His body would be broken to pieces for the many. Me and you. Every person who would trust in him, have you trusted in him in that way? And maybe today you come in here and you're like, I, I don't have any orientation on my faith. I don't understand. I feel like I've just kind of lost my way. I feel like I've just kind of lost what I'm doing in my life. I don't feel any fulfillment in the day-to-day and like the, the passion that I had for Christ, it's kind of waned and fallen away. Jesus is saying, look at me. Taste my body. Look at me. Look at me. I've, I've, I've laid my life down for you. Be ravished by the story. Be joyful. Delight in it. But two, something that Jesus does here is he shows us that this lamb is the lamb of a particular covenant. In the, Exodus, in the Exodus story, the lamb would serve as a constant reminder of the covenant that God would make with him. So when Jesus says, here is my body broken for you, this is the same way that Moses communicated to the people in Exodus 24.8. Exodus 24.8 says this. It says that Moses took the blood of the lamb and he threw it on the people Threw it on the people. Imagine that being you. You're standing there in the temple. Moses is standing before them. They, they sacrifice this lamb. He takes the blood and he throws it on the people. And this is what it says. Moses said, he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. That's what Jesus is establishing here. He's saying, see, he's signifying this moment. The body that was broken. The body of Christ that was broken. In the Passover lamb. The, the, the blood that was spilled by the Passover lamb of God is, is showing us that he is our God forever. It's the lamb of the covenant. God in Jesus lays his life down so that we would understand and never move past the fact that he is our God and we are his people. And every time we come to the table, we partake of that. Every single time. And at this moment for the disciples, when the disciples, were ne- they had never experienced it like this. They had never seen and understood the Passover to be anything more than just a commemoration. Right? Jesus is saying, it is a sign of the covenant that I have made with you. Look at my body broken. I will never leave you or forsake you. But not just a covenant. The body was broken, Isaiah 53. We see that there's, a, there's somewhat of a, a, a theological reference in Luke 22 to that, to the fact that the, the bread was broken and distributed out. It was divided among the many. And two, the blood that was poured out is the blood that we see in the Old Testament that, that Moses slings on the people and says, look, this is the covenant I've established with you. But number three, Jesus does something interesting in verse 20. Because he adds to this meal something that's very significant. Verse 20, it says this, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten. So oftentimes, the, the, the Passover was a, was, a, was a ceremony that many people 
you know, gathered around and took it. And there were multiple cups that you, that you, that you took it. The first one, as you see, is Jesus holds up a cup. They drink of it. And it's a cup of blessing. Where they just, Jesus basically just has a, an, an opening moment where they just say, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for all this gathering, for all that you're doing among us. And there's different cups that you lift up. So after the body of Christ is broken, the blood of Christ is received, there's another cup to follow. And it's in verse 20, and it says this. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, this is what Jesus says when he raises that cup. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In this meal, unlike ones before, Jesus was establishing a new covenant with his people. And the blood of Christ poured out for the sins of many is the benefits of a new covenant that God would make with his people. And this language is not foreign to the Israelite. This language is not foreign to the one who had been trusting and waiting on God to do something amazing for all of their lives. And here comes Jesus. But they knew exactly what he meant because of what it says in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I'm going to read that. I'm going to have Devin pull it up on the screen if he can. Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34, it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is it. Listen to these words. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. So God promises in the Old Testament what Jesus is saying is fulfilled right here. The new covenant. Through the blood of Christ. Through Jesus drinking down the dregs of the cup of God's wrath. God was establishing a new covenant where his people would have this new inner witness in their heart where they would intimately know God. Not just theoretically, not just to God out there mysteriously removed from them, but they would intimately, deeply know who God was in their hearts. And this new covenant language that Jesus uses here helps us better understand how this relates to what we now call the Lord's Supper or communion. So I want to give us three observations about the Lord's Supper. And then I pray that these observations are something that orients us correctly around the Lord's table before we go and partake of it today. So Jesus, in Luke 22, he celebrates the Passover and his last supper with the disciples before his death. But this last supper also stands as the first supper of the new covenant, a new salvation that we would experience when the Lamb of God was sacrificed on our behalf so that God might pass over former sins. In the last supper, Jesus inaugurates the Lord's Supper that we practice on a weekly basis. This is the inauguration of that. This is why Paul tells us to continue in this and do it regularly. 
What Jesus does here is what Paul points us to later in the New Testament to see how we are to really understand what the Lord's Supper is. What does it mean? And what is happening in it? That's what I hope that we can look at today. So here's three observations to help us understand what the Lord's Supper is about. One, at the Lord's table, we remember the past. At the Lord's table, we remember the past. Verse 19 says this, do this in remembrance of me. That is a very significant word because it shows us what exactly the table is about. John Blue, he's a writer, he says this. He says, Old Testament Israel looked back to the Exodus through the Passover meal. New Testament Israel, me and you, that's us. It looks back to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus through the Lord's Supper. As often as we eat this new Passover meal, we remember a greater Exodus. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And here, because of this, we have redemption in Christ. We have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. The Christian faith says what Jesus says at the cross when he says it is finished. What do I mean by that? What Jesus means when Jesus at the cross says it is finished and he dies, takes on the sins of the world, and before he passes away, he says it is finished. What Jesus means when he says this is that what he has accomplished at the cross has ramifications for us now. What he accomplished there isn't just a moment in time that's going to fade away, but it is a significant moment in the history of all of God's people that will carry on to an eternity. And when you read the New Testament regularly, the language of the New Testament is past tense. When Paul Oftentimes, Ephesians is a great example. When Paul tells us about what has happened in Christ, it's not so much of what is happening or what will happen, though it does include those things 100%. This is just an aspect that I'm bringing up. What you see regularly, though, is a past tense. This is what I mean. Consider some of the things at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who blessed us. Past tense, right? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What that means is every, every blessing in Christ that we as believers experience, it was accomplished at the cross. It's not to be accomplished. It's already been accomplished. It's past tense. It continues and says, even as he chose us in the past tense before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined past tense us. Or you go to Ephesians chapter 2, it says in Ephesians 2 that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And that he has raised us up with him, raised us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly places. Past tense, which means right now, though you're here, though we're gathering right here, you're actually seated there. You're actually seated at the right hand of God forever. It's been sealed, stamped, nothing's going to change it because of the blood of the Lamb. Is past tense. So when we come to the table, when we come to receive the fruit of the vine, which is what we'll call it, considering we don't serve wine, we serve grape juice. When we come to receive the fruit of the vine, we come to receive the bread. There is a sense where we are remembering what has already been accomplished through Christ. We've been delivered. We've been forgiven. We've been reconciled. Our sins have been passed over. The wrath of God has been satisfied. We've been transferred 
into another kingdom, past tense. We remember. But also, too, at the Lord's table, this is significant. All these are significant, but in my fashion, I'm overly excited. At the Lord's table, just hear me, church. We fellowship in the presence. We fellowship. This is what is said in verse 19, Luke 22, 19. It says, this is my body. I'm going to get there in a second. This is my body. That, that has been debated for centuries, what that means. But there's two elements I want to bring out in regards to what is happening presently, right here in this moment, in the present tense. Two things. The first thing I'll say is we proclaim, too, is that we, we fellowship with Christ and with one another. But on the point of we proclaim, we presently come to the table and there's a fellowship that we experience because we are proclaiming something. You don't come and just receive. Your posture at the table is an active tense. It's an active posture. It is a proclaiming. It's not a receiving. It's proclaiming as you receive. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says this. It says, as often as you eat it, as often as you drink it, what you do is you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You're proclaiming it. When we come to the table, we are by faith and participation proclaiming the gospel for ourselves and for others. For others is an important piece. Don't think about that often. When you come and receive the body and the bread, the discouraged saint that's in our church gets to hear the proclamation through your actions that you are forgiven, O troubled sinner. We are proclaiming that we are not defined by our sins. We're not defined by our temptations or our failures that oftentimes mark our lives and mark our lives more than we're comfortable with. We're defined by Christ. We are proclaiming that we no longer stand underneath the judgment of God, but we are reconciled through the body of death on the cross. We proclaim that death will have no hold on us anymore. It has no hold now. We proclaim that sickness will not be final and ultimate in our lives. It isn't final or ultimate now. Christ has won the victory over the grave. We proclaim the gospel. And this gives us an opportunity to take hold of Christ afresh. But we also proclaim this as well. And this leads me into to what I'm really trying to bring out about this present tense moment of what's presently happening when we gather around the Lord's table. We proclaim that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God and subsequently, because he's there, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell on us now. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we're actually united to him in a real way. We're presently there, man. We're, we're up there with him. We're united in fellowship with him and not just with him, but with one another. We fellowship with Christ through His Spirit. This is how we understand Jesus' words here when He says, This is my body. What does He mean? A lot of people have misunderstood this. And what I would propose for clarity is that when you hear this is, you would hear this signifies. This signifies my body. It's not that the bread and the wine actually become those things that we drink. It's not actually the body and blood of Christ. It's, it's not like a real presence. That's there at the table. That's what Catholics and Lutherans both believe. We don't believe that. What we believe is that when we come to the table, there's a mysterious and indescribable work of the Holy Spirit that God is doing. It's a spiritual presence at the table. And let's not shy away from that. That in a spiritual way that we cannot fully understand, in an indescribable way, God is there. God is with us. Or maybe 
better through our faith. We are there. We are in heaven with him. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ at the Lord's table. We're united to Christ at the Lord's table. Is that not amazing? The gospel isn't something we just look back to. The gospel is something you presently experience right now. That's why it's not to be trifled with. When we, by faith, take hold of the promises of God in Christ, and we come to receive what He has done for us by eating and drinking at the Lord's table, we are united with Christ at the right hand of God. Wow. And because of this unity, there is extreme benefit and uncalculable spiritual nourishment through this regular practice. That man probably seems very mundane. I know it seems mundane for Tyler. He sets it up every week. The spirit of the New Testament tells us that this should be this regular practice so that we can be regularly united and mysteriously united to the person and work of Christ in our lives. We have fellowship with Christ through the Spirit. But I want you to consider this, and we've talked about this at times, but we're really going to just sit down here just for a couple of intentional moments. One benefit that is so important to acknowledge is this. At the table, at this Lord's table, we have fellowship with one another. And it's through the Spirit and through the reminder that Jesus is taking care of all of our sins at the cross. You know, one of the real consequences of sin and our faithlessness towards God, faithlessness is a great way to really sum up what sin is. Sin is our not believing and trusting that God is who he says he is. So it leads to things in our life. And one of the fruits of that, the real consequences of that, is always relational brokenness. Always. Every time you are in sin, it always leads to relationships being jacked up. That's the best way to say it. Think about in the Garden of, of, of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned. There was this brokenness, right? Between Adam and Eve. Adam wasn't happy. Nobody was happy. In Genesis 4, think about this. Cain's sin toward God resulted in the murder of Abel. The result of Cain's sin towards God, his faithlessness towards God led to murder. Our brokenness with God always has horizontal and community-wide effects. Always has those. But at the Lord's table, this is what happens. We are reminded, or maybe even further, we are confronted with the blood and the body of the Passover lamb, Jesus. And it is revealed that one day, at the table, there will be no more of this brokenness. There will be no more of this brokenness. My brother and sister in Christ that I'm probably frustrated with, that I'm angry at, that I'm hurt by, listen to this. That brother or sister that you're frustrated with, that angers you, one day, will be a brother or sister that you are in unbroken fellowship with forever. Yeah. Think about that. How does that change the perspective of how we interact now with one another? The pain, the heartache of relationships now, the walls of hostility that we all put up from time to time are broken at the Lord's table because of the body and blood of Christ. When we partake of the Lord's Supper and we're united to Christ by faith and through the Holy Spirit, 
We are actively experiencing what it means to be the one united body of Christ. There is a participation in the one unbroken body of Christ. We all drink from the same spirit. We all eat from the same table. And therefore, we are all a part of, if you have believed in Christ, a part of the family of God. And I would add here something that the global church probably understands a lot better than us here in America understands. You are closer, like family, to those in this room, which what I mean by that is the fellow believers who are in Christ, who profess Christ, you are closer in family to those in this room who profess Christ than your own family members who do not profess Christ. You are closer here, actually here, with the different individuals here who you may not even know well, who you may have never talked to. If they believe in Christ, they're your brother, they're your sister. This is your family, the family of God. The Lord's table penetrates that truth into our hearts. Those who love, believe in, and profess Christ are now your brothers and sisters. And man, we're, we're reminded weekly of that. So there's a tangible, present work that happens here. And it is as we by faith come to the table to receive his promises, we're united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. And we're united in fellowshipping with one another as well. Last point I'll make. At the Lord's table, we hope in the future. So in verse 18, it says this. Until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, so as we read Jesus' words here in this entire chapter almost, the entirety of this passage, there's, there's multiple points of a future orientation of the Lord's Supper. Meaning that when we come to receive it, we don't just remember, although we do. You saw the significance of that. We don't just have present benefit, although there are. They're amazing. But there's also a future orientation that we bring to past, present, and future. We look to the future, our future, your future, Christian, that you are going to have with God forever. We look to the moment where Jesus will eat of this meal again, and he's going to eat this meal again with you. We look to the moment where we will be with him, and he will be with you. If we only focus on the incarnation that God is with us here, then we really only have a lens to see how God helps us and is with us in the presence, in, all, in the present, with all of the all circumstances and suffering that we face. But when we turn our attention to the future promises of God, the future promises of God for His people, we see how our present life is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed one day. It's not worth comparing. And we begin to live lives that are oriented around His kingdom and His kingdom alone because our hearts are fixed there. Our hearts are there. We're not just a Christmas people. We're an Easter people. Christmas is in the incarnation. Jesus came to dwell with us. We're an Easter people. Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God. The Christian life must be lived with our eyes fixed on Christ at the right hand of God. The Lord's table orients us around that in that way. Which is where the New Testament says that we are right now. Do you believe that? One of the greatest ways that you will endure suffering. One of the greatest ways that you'll be able to persevere through all, your, all trials and circumstances in your life is to see that you are not here. You're there. You're with Him right now. You're with Him right now. There's so much security to understand that. You are seated in the heavenly places with Him. Nothing can touch you. You're a citizen of heaven. 
And one day, your life will match that reality. One day, your life will feel as if you're a citizen of heaven. We've been raised with him already. And one day, you will be raised with him in reality. So today, I hope that you have been given an orientation to understand what's happening at the Lord's Supper each week. It's amazing. It's incredible. Remembering, fellowshipping, hoping in what is to come. So we're going to actually turn to the table right now. We'd like John and Daniel to come up. And before we do that, I want you to hear these words in 1 Corinthians. If you're unconvinced that Jesus is the Passover lamb, I'll let Paul argue with you. 1 Corinthians 5, 7-8 says this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate. That's what this is. That's what we get to experience now. We get to come around the, the, the broken body and blood of Christ, our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed, and we get to celebrate. We get to remember. We get to rejoice. We get to come with our needs and our wants and our desires and our heartaches and our sadness and our anger. We get to bring it to the table and experience real-time fellowship with Christ who answers all of our questions, who is the solution to all of our questions. This is what I've all, you probably oftentimes heard me say. I think a lot of times we think that when we go to be in heaven with Jesus one day, that you're going to have answers to all of the questions that have happened in your life. And not that you won't have answers to a lot of things. I think you will. But I think more than anything, the presence of Jesus will silence your questions. It'll silence all of your questions. When we come to the table, we get to experience that real presence of Christ. Spiritual presence of Christ and with one another. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate. As we go to the table and come to the table, um, I'm to, in just a second, I want to ask Jay if he could stand there. We're, we're, this is not to be trifled with, right? I mean, of all the things we just heard, all the things we just saw in the Bible, who Christ is, we must not trifle with this. So I just encourage you, if you're not a Christian, you know, to with, with, with stage from coming to the table, if you're a Christian, born again, believer, baptized in the local church, and, and love Him or walking with Him, Pursuing Him in whatever way that that means in your life, we would invite you to come to the table. We invite you to come to the table and receive grace upon grace upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace, never ending from the right hand of God. Jesus, thank you for this moment. We love you. Lord, thank you for this passage in Luke 22. God, it is so beautiful. And uh, Lord, I pray that, God, we would, we would now, over the coming moments, be able to truly delight and truly experience what all it is that you're doing here because we have greater perspective and understanding of what happens in Luke 22 here. Thank you for this passage in the Bible that we have to, to help us, God. You helped us in so many ways, Lord, through this passage. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that... The author of this gospel, Luke, he wants us to do nothing but to look at the person and work of Christ. Thank you for that. And I pray that that's what we would do as we come and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, table's going to be open. I'm going to ask you guys uh, to stand. And you can come and partake of it, and then we're going to sing a hymn together.